Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. So what we've been doing for some months is we have been, just to take a step back because we took a break and kind of review where we're at, what we've been doing for some months is we're we're basically looking at kind of a history of Jewish theology or ideas about God and contemplating how those ideas filter in the Sidur. And we're starting out with ideas about God from the Bible, from the to- the Chumash or the Torah, uh, either, either the Torah or the Tanakh as a whole. The next three weeks, we're going to be looking more at other parts of the Tanakh, other parts of the Bible, rather than the Torah, the Chumash. Um, and just to review, just to just to tee us up and get us going, does anyone remember some of the views of God in the Bible that we mentioned? Shout it out, Alan. There was shame was going to be God from above, but they talk about the name. Kavod. Okay, hold on, pause, pause. So shame meaning God's essence above, far away. God is far away. All we're left with is God's words or. God's essence. That was one idea. Kavod, go ahead. Kavod is uh, or the P, the P tradition about God is present and among us in the sanctuary. God's actual, perhaps, sorry for those who are offended, physical presence in the Mishkan or the Beit HaMikdash. That was another good, another view of God. Good. I don't remember any others. The idea of the Malach, that God can manifest a an actual physical representation um, on earth that can talk to people and looks seems human-like, humanoid. We talked about God as fighter. I think we did, right? God, God is, is what? Fighter, fighting, fighting. We talked about God is power. Sorry. We talked about God's power in nature. We we talked about God is manifest through the beauty of nature, different than the power of nature, power of nature, beauty of nature. We talked about God as powerful, actually, as I think we talked about God as a as a Ishmael Hama fighting force. Did we do that? I can't remember. Um, we talked about we had a little interlude around high holidays. We talked about God as judge. Okay, so what we're gonna what I'd like to look at in the next three weeks is the idea of God in relationship. And God in relationship seems to be depicted as a personality who has feelings. So there is a strand in the Bible. This is mostly not in the Torah, in the five books of Moses. It's mostly in other sections of the Bible, of God as a personality in relationship with us, who has feelings. God is a personality in relationship. Now, we got a little bit of this in the Torah, and you might say, oh, we got plenty of that, because we've just read Breshit and Noah, the first two parshiot of the Bible, where we actually have a pretty significant dose of that, right? God changes his mind. God gets angry. God looks at what the humans have done, and God regrets uh, what's happened, and God says, okay, I'm going to wipe them all out. 
And then after the flood, God is changed. God says, okay, now I realize they're not going to change. And of course, our classical commentators are as disturbed as we are by these passages. What do you, what do you mean God regrets? What do you mean God changes God's mind? How can you talk about God that way? Um, so our, our commentators try to, um, I guess I'll, I'll just be blunt and say, explain away what it seems like the simple meaning of those passages is. But then that God who changes God's mind a lot seems to mostly disappear from the Chumash after these two parshiot. We do have little things. We have a mention in Deuteronomy that God um, chose Israel because God loves Israel. We have mentions of God getting angry, sin of the golden calf, sin of the spies, some of the other sins in the desert. God gets angry and Moshe has to talk God out of God's anger. Um, but this idea of God with a personality in relationships, with a personality in relationship to us, to humanity, is greatly, greatly explored and amplified much more deeply in other sections of the Bible. Um, in the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the prophets, by which I mean the literary prophets, not Moses or Samuel. Um, and um, the prophets, their, I'm going to say, experience of God, sensibility about God, is that God has a, is in relationship with us, and has a personality and has feelings. This week we'll look, a, we'll take a look at God's love, God as loving. Um, I think next week we'll take a look at God as um, getting angry. So we're going to look at love and anger. Those are the two feelings we're going to look at in depth. And then week three, I think I'm going to try to do some things from the prophets, I'm uh, sorry, from the Psalms, from Tehillim. Um, in the prophets, usually the relationship is between God and Israel as a group. It's kind of a group relationship with us. In the Psalms, we find more um, a description of God in relationship with the individual. Okay, so that's, I think, a significant distinction between the Nevi'im, the prophets, and Tehillim, the Psalms. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at God as in relationship with Israel, God as loving Israel, God as, uh, next week, God as being angry with Israel, and that's going to be mostly the prophets. That's where we're at. I'll pause before I share text. Are there any questions about that? And we'll get to later thinkers like Maimonides, for example. We're going in historical order. After Bible, we'll do rabbinic. After rabbinic, we'll do philosophy and Kabbalah. Then we'll get to modernity. I have no idea how long that's going to take. Um, but of course, there are later figures, later thinkers, who say that is not to be understood as literally true. It's all a metaphor. That when we see God's actions in the world, we interpret them as if, if it were a human who did those actions, we would say the human loves us. And so we use the metaphor from our human experience, but that's not, I, I, and I guess you can 
it's fair to say, did the prophets literally believe this or did they think of it as a metaphor? And I, for one, certainly do not know the answer to that. So let's get cooking and look at some text. And I'm going to share the screen. First, I'm going to make sure I have the right screen. Always make sure you have the correct screen, not something embarrassing. And here's the correct screen. And again, for people listening at home, um, we're going to, um, I'll send you this text. Okay. Um, most of the prophets who talk about God's love for Israel mostly use the metaphor of marriage. There's a less common note, um, which is the relationship of parent and child. But the dominant um, metaphor that's used for God's love for us is that of a marriage in which, not too shockingly, God is the husband and we are the wife. Um, I will just say this in shorthand. Part of the radical monotheization of ancient Israel was that all the gods and goddesses, all the forces of nature, were swept aside in favor of the one force, the one God. Um, that God was conceived of generally as male, okay? Which then, and don't quote this line totally devoid of context, okay? Which then leaves God, the male deity, the soul deity, without a wife. God used to have a wife in the pagan thinking when there were gods and goddesses, okay? Um, and probably in the pagan pre-monotheistic thinking, which we still have little echoes of here and there, um, we have echoes of it because we're told to destroy it because it's pagan. Uh, God's wife might have been Asherah, all right? Um, you will read in the Bible and in the prophets about you have to destroy the Asherah. It's, it's wiping out some vestige of pagan worship. So God is left without a wife, but in fact, God gets a wife, literarily and metaphorically. God's wife is us. We're God's wife. God loves us like a husband loves a wife. I'll just cut to the chase. We are sometimes a faithless wife. Why are we a faith? How are we a faithless wife? What do you think? We have to other guys. Yeah, we go, we go date other men. We stray. We commit adultery. Uh, the, the, which means we go worship other gods, other deities, in particular, which deity? Who is the arch, Uh-oh. arch bad deity? Say it again. Uh-oh. Baal. Okay. The arch bad deity, ba- bad meaning don't worship that other deity, which means this was the main, let's just say, competing religious belief at a certain era of, I don't know, probably a couple hundred years was Baal. Okay. So we've gone astray. We're like a faithless wife. The husband is angry. Here comes the part of the story we don't really like to read, but I want to be candid about it. The husband kind of goes berserk and abandons his wife or punishes his wife or shames his wife publicly. She realizes who her true husband is. Israel Israel realizes 
who is the real God, and then they are reconciled in love. So the going berserk part of it is the part we don't like to read. So we might, I might actually skip over that, but it's there. Okay. We think the first prophet who, it, it appears, who initiates this idea is the prophet Hosea, Hosea, around 750 BCE in the northern kingdom. There's two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. They split almost 200 years before. Hosea is in the northern kingdom, which is by far a, the more populous and prosperous kingdom but it's destroyed in 721, never to be heard from again, 10 lost tribes. So Hosea seems to be the prophet who, the first prophet who develops this idea of God as husband and us a wife. And the metaphor is the prophet's life. God commands Hosea the prophet, go marry a prostitute. Now, does that marry someone who's already a prostitute or someone who's going to stray on him? Unclear, we're not going to get into it. Um, you can go, you, you can go read it, chapter one through three of Hosea. Even after you read it, you won't entirely be sure. Was she a prostitute beforehand? Is, does she go whoring only after they get married? But he says, go get yourself a whore wife. I have, I have bolted it here and you will have whore children. So he marries someone named Gomer and they have three children. The first one is a son called Yisrael because of something bad that happened at a place called Yisrael. It's not clear what the bad thing is. We're not going to talk about it. Then she has two daughters, and the daughters are called Loruchama, which means unloved, and Loami, which means not kin, not child. Call your daughters not loved and not kin. Very nice names. <laughs> okay? And, but... Then we have at the beginning of chapter two, a little bit of uplift, but eventually, don't worry. You, B'nai Israel, people of Israel are going to be so numerous as it stands on the seashore, you'll be uncountable. And instead of being called not people, you will be called B'nai El Chai, children of the living God. So it's a foreshadowing. Eventually, there's going to be a name change, right? And, and, um, Lo Ruchama, unloved, will become called Ruchama, a good old-fashioned Mizrahi name, even today. Maybe it's an Ashkenazi name also, but only name of a grandmother, right? Uh, I think. I don't think there are any nine-year-old Ruhamas running around today in Israel. <laughs> and Ami, Lo Ami, not my kin, will be called Ami, kin, meaning these children are going to have a name change, which is going to change the meaning. Okay, the, the name change re- reflects a change of meaning. Okay, but now God is angry. Imru, rivu ve'imchem rivu. In English, I should have changed this. This is the JPS translation. Remonstrate your mother, remonstrate her. I should have changed the translation because I don't think we use that word, remonstrate. It basically means rebuke and have an argument with her. Okay? Rebuke your mother, rebuke her. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. By the way, what does that sound like? If I said to you, maybe he's quoting a formula. If the formula is, she is not my wife and I am not her husband. What does that sound like a formula of maybe? Divorce. Divorce. Yeah. Divorce. Okay. Divorce. So let her get rid of her whoredom and her adultery. Else I will strip her naked as the day as she was born and make her like a wilderness. I will disown her. I'm skipping, skipping, skipping. She thought I will go after my lovers the ones who supply all of my bread and water, wool and linen. Baal, as a deity, 
in particular was understood to be responsible for fertility. He was a fertility god with his goddess consort. So B'nai Israel went astray. They thought all of their good fertility, which means their stuff growing in Eretz Israel, the lushness of the vegetation, was from Baal. Okay, so she went after Baal, but I'm going to block her. She's going to run after lovers. I'm going very fast. I'm skipping. She'll run after her lovers, but I will block up her way with a fence and she will not find them. And then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then I fared better than now. That's what she's going to say, the wife, us, Israel. First husband being who? Hashem. Okay, got it? So she wants to run after her lovers because she thinks they gave her all the gifts of fertility. I'm going to block her way so she won't be able to. And then he goes on and on. And I'm going to take all the stuff away, okay, the ugly stuff. I'm going to shame her publicly, okay? And to, by the way, to contemporary people with our contemporary sensitivities about men and women, this part does read as, um, you know, ugly and disturbing. I want to acknowledge that. And then at the end, they will be reconciled. And God will be uh, kind of seductive. Lifatot is really means sweet-talking someone into something, okay? I will speak coaxingly to her. I will lead her out of the wilderness. I will give her her vineyards. Then she will respond as in the days of the youth when she came up in the land of Egypt. So the days of the desert are seen as the days of the youth when we were close together in our marital relationship. And at that day, declares God, one of the like coolest plays on language in the whole entire Tanakh, right? On that day, says Hashem, you will call me Ishi, my man, and no more will you call me Baali. It's a pun. The conventional word for husband is Baal, which just as in English, husband means something, right? Some function, you know, animal, husbandry, whatever. I don't know what it is in from, from Anglo-Saxon exactly. Okay. Baal literally means, what does Baal mean literally? Master. Master, Lord. So Baali means my Lord. So you're no longer going to call me uh, my, my Lord. You're going to call me my man. Okay. A more egalitarian term. Because you're not going to say the name Baal anymore. So it's kind of a pun, a play on words. Um, by the way, in, in, in very, uh, very, um, egalitarian people in Israel nowadays, um, many of them do not like the word Baal as husband for this, um, particular reason. And they will say, people may say Ishi. Not, it's not necessarily because they read Hosea in school and actually remember it. It's kind of a, contemporary reawakening of this idea okay um and in the end and for those of us who wear tefillin there is a custom it's probably i haven't looked in a sephardi sidur it may only be ashkenazi i don't know what sephardim say when they put on tefillin that i will re-espouse you so we're going to get married again and then these are the three lines we say when we do the three wraps of tefillin around the middle finger. I will be, I will betroth you or espouse you, marry you forever. 
I will espouse you with righteousness and justice and goodness and mercy. And I will espouse you with faithfulness. And then you will truly know God. Right? So when you do this with your tefillin, this is actually meant to be an enactment of what thing? Wedding. It's a wedding ring. The tefillin wraps on your middle finger. It's the wedding ring that God gives us. So we have here a human drama. They get married. She's faithless. She strays. God goes berserk and punishes her. She realizes who the true husband is. She comes back. There is reconciliation. There is essentially what is a remarriage formula. Okay. And this marriage is, is lit olam forever, right? This is the renewal of vows where God says, no, 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 this time it's going to be forever. Okay. Um, finishing with virichamti at virich lo ruchama. And I will have compassion for not compassion. I will have love for unloved, the daughter. And I will say to not kin, you are my kin, and he will say, you are my God. Okay. So this is the marital drama. And you might say, duh, I kind of knew that. So uh, that, that was rattling in around in my brain somewhere. Uh, by the way, um, Hopefully, Larry is listening somewhere today because, uh, you know, the Haftarah, plethora, uh, people should certainly know this because this is a Haftarah. So it might be familiar to you. It's a Haftarah. Okay. I'm going to pause. Any question or comment on that? I do want to say I acknowledge that for some people, the husband goes berserk and shames his wife publicly, Middle e- ancient Middle Eastern style, ruins this whole thing for them. Personally, I try to ignore it. You know, it's sort of like, oh, it's the inconvenient parts that I want to skip over. So when I'm putting on my wedding ring in the morning, I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking of that part. Okay, yeah. I'm thinking of it's the embrace of remarriage, but I acknowledge that some people say like, oh, this is like the cycle of abusers, you know, there's love and then there's abuse. And then they say, oh, honey, I love you. And, and I just can't read this passage. So I just want to, just want to acknowledge that I know there are some people who experience it that way. Okay. Jeremiah, uh, a hundred plus years later. Uh, this is a Haftar also. It is in the second or third Haftarah of the weeks before Tisha B'Av. I remembered in your favor the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, says God, when you followed me around in the wilderness in a land with nothing. So this is God as husband in a very human way saying, you know, I remember when I had that first job in Nowheresville State University in upper outer Podunk. (laughs) <laughs> and you came with me there and, you know, and, and we made a bookcase that was made of cinder blocks and boards that we found because we had nothing. That's what Hashem is saying. I remember how loving you were when you followed me around in the desert when there was nothing. So it's interesting. The desert here, if you just think of the desert tradition in the Chumash and how it's remembered, okay, with all the challenges, you know, it was a punishment for the, for the sin of the spies. 
and there were all these challenges to God. Here, the prophet Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, just before the destruction of the temple, uses the trope of the desert to remember it as a beautiful, hopeless, a beautiful, hopeful place at the beginning of our marriage. But elsewhere in Jeremiah, we have the relationship image of a parent and child. Okay, so there is still a relationship, different relationship, same prophet, which shows that this is not what we would call organized philosophical theology where everything needs to be consistent, but rather prophets who are have great imagination and great capacity for imagination and putting it into poetry, who are trying to talk about there's a loving relationship between God and Israel. It's a relationship. And we use to, to, to imagine or depict it relationships that are familiar to us from our lives. Spouses. Okay. Now here's parent child. When Israel is going to exile, thus says God, a cry is heard in Ramah, a place. The cry is wailing, bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children who are gone. The exiles are going into exile, and you hear on the wind from far away a cry. It is the cry of Mother Rachel weeping for her children. Hashem says, don't worry, you will come back. Your children will return to their country, says God. Then I hear Ephraim, which is an epithet for Israel in this case, lamenting. You have chastised me, and I am chastised. And then God says, truly, Ephraim is a dear son to me, a child that is dandled. Another English word that we don't use all that often. It means when you play with a little child, you bop them up and down on your knee and you play with them. Yeled Shashuim. Haben Yakirli Ephraim im Yeled Shashuim. Isn't Ephraim or Israel my beloved son? who I delight in, who I play with, even though sometimes I am angry with him, my I always think of him, my heart yearns for him, and I will receive him back in love. He's like a wayward child who implied here, perhaps, is who the parent needed to let go or even punish. But in fact, he is my beloved child who I bopped up and down on my knee. When do we say this passage? Might be familiar to you. Uh, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. It's one of the, the beautiful lines in Zichronot, the three sections in Musaf, Malchiot, uh, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. Zichronot, because it has the line, Kimide Dabribo, even when I speak against him, Zachor Ez Karenu Od, I always remember him. Okay? Even when I send, send him to stand in the corner or go to your room, I, um, I always think of him. Right. So the prophets who use these metaphors, these images of human relationships to understand, to depict God's relationship with Israel, um, have to account for the fact that there is, uh, there are periods of exile and suffering. Okay. So if God loves us so much, why is there exile and suffering? According to the prophets. Okay. I am not going to get into contemporary theology at this moment because we'll never get off. But according to the prophets, why is there suffering? Because the husband got angry at the wife because she was faithless or because the parent got mad at the child because the child was wayward and needed to be disciplined. 
Ezekiel, which we're not going to read, but you can read it at home, Ezekiel chapter 16. In Ezekiel, B'nai Israel is a foundling. It's an abandoned baby in the desert that I found you on the day of your birth. No one bathed you. No one washed you. No one swaddled you. You were in your, like, rolling in your blood and meconium and that kind of stuff. Okay? And then I came by again. Oh, and you were 13 years old, 12 years old. You were an age of marriageability. This is the part of it, again, which uh, is a little bit icky with our contemporary sensibilities. But, you know, it's a Middle Eastern thing. It was then. It still is now. Very often older men marry younger women. uh, And this is considered acceptable and okay, even though in our society it would be illegal. Okay? Um, And... Then I took you under my wing and I married you. So babe, so Israel was an abandoned baby. No one took care of you. I took care of you. And then eventually, uh, when you were older, I fell in love and I married you. Um, we also have a passage from Yeshayahu from this past week's Haftar, which I had to include. Isaiah, the second part of Isaiah that's sometimes called second Isaiah, the uplifting Haftarot. Um, you are the despise, you, you're, you think you're the shamed wife, but no, 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 no. You will be the beloved wife. I was only angry for a second, but can a man forget the love of the wife of his youth? Rhetorical question. No. Okay. So it was a moment of anger. I hid my face from you, but I take you back with love forever. Again, like Hosea, Chesed Olam. The remarriage is forever, right? The the first marriage is conditional. Second marriage is forever. Okay, pause. I'm going to stop screen sharing. I went through a whole bunch of texts very fast. Um, I will send them. They'll, they'll be po- posted on the website later today. Please feel free to look at them um, at greater length at home. I kind of want to summarize, and then I'll just open for, we don't have a lot of live people today. I'll just open for a comment question. So, in this strain of thinking, which is a little bit in the Torah, it does say God loves us, and it does say God gets angry. We're going to look at the anger more next week, okay? Um, but this theme is greatly, greatly, greatly amplified conceptually and poetically in the prophets who are speaking to the people trying to explain what's going on in Israel's history and try to get them to, you know, repentance and 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 don't worship foreign gods and cleave to Hashem alone. The prophets are basically saying, God has a personality with feelings. This feeling, the dominant feeling in this strand of thinking that I brought today is love. God loves us like a husband loves a wife. They, they, they're in, in terms of their consciousness over 2,500 years ago, they're unable to think of it in non-gendered terms. Uh, I don't critique that. Um, I don't critique them for that because, you know, that was then and this is now. And surely if we were writing similar ideas now, we might write it somewhat differently if we wanted to explore that theme. Okay. But the theme is God is in relationship with us. It is a relationship of love. God loves Israel like a husband loves a wife like a husband loves the wife of his youth when he remembers fondly how they were young together. Um, God may get angry if the wife is uh, 
commits adultery, but God loves her and takes her back. Okay. Or, and um, I could have brought you other passages of God as parent and child. Okay. Um, God is a parent who loves Israel like a child. So the prophets are trying to use the imagery and I would say evoke in us the feeling state of human relationships to try to describe their experience of God in the life of the nation, in this strand of thinking that God loves us. We're beloved like a child or like a spouse. And there may be moments of disruption, because again, the prophets have to explain why historically there are dark times, okay? But ultimately, there is always reconciliation, and God has never forgotten love, God's love for us, whether because God is like a parent or like a spouse. I'm going to pause. Any thoughts, comments, questions, reactions, anything? You don't have to. You can think about it. You like it. You not like it. In favor, against. So think about how this resonates or doesn't resonate. By the way, very briefly, how does it filter into the Sidur? I forgot that's the point of the whole class. How does this filter into the Sidur? Well, it's Ahava Rabban. We have a whole blessing about it. It must be have it must have been considered really important by the group rabbinic mind that created the liturgy, because it's one of the three brachot of the Shema service, right? You loved us with a great love. Now it's transformed. It's different in Ahavarabah. What manifests the love in Ahavarabah? God giving the Torah. Torah. God gave us guidance, right? So that we're not wandering around, not having any idea which way is up. So it's a little bit more like a parent than a spouse, although it doesn't say parent anywhere in Ahavarabah, okay? Um, but this is a manifestation of God's love for us, which the group mind that created the Sidur very cleverly pairs up against, not in opposition, but face-to-face with the next paragraph, which is, what's the next paragraph of Avarabah? After that, it's... Uh, right after Avarabah. It's right after Avarabah. The first paragraph of... Shema. which commands us to love God, right? So Avarabah... Um, by the way, the prophets in general don't do this very much. They don't say God loves you, and so you've got to love God back. It says God loves you, and therefore you feel abandoned, you feel forgotten. It's not true. God really loves you. There will be reconciliation. In general, in the prophets, it does. It says, and you will be faithful to God. It does not say, and so you got to love God back. That is really created by our Sidur, okay, which has Avarabah. By the way, if you look carefully through Avarabah, and we did this probably a year and a half ago, I don't remember when, right? There is mutual Ahava. Sometimes it's God loves Israel. Sometimes it's Israel loves God. And so it's supposed, it's supposed to evoke this mutual relationship of love, which then spills into the command of the first paragraph of the Shema of, and so you should act lovingly towards God. How do you act lovingly towards God? Putting these words on your door posts, imbuing the life of your home and your public life with the words of Torah, teaching it to your children, talking about all the time. That's what people do when they love something and love someone. So the Sidur links this idea of God loves us to loop back into the, I'm going to put it in parentheses, and therefore, 
that's why we're supposed to act lovingly towards God by doing certain things. And um, we're going to stop right here. Uh, and I'll say we pray for a world with greater love because uh, Lord knows we need it. So go out Amen. there and bring God's love into the world more today. Be Torah, God willing. See you next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.